It was in June of 2017. Estelle and her sister had decided to take some time together and were now spending a full month helping on a ranch in the western part of British Columbia in Canada. At that time, I was in Cairo visiting my family and on this hot, sunny morning, I quietly snuck into the kitchen, made a coffee and went out on the sun-drenched balcony trying not to wake up the others that were still fast asleep. While the last morning rays were gently brushing my skin, I took a first sip of my coffee. My day could start now. I checked my phone to see if I had received anything and then started to scroll through some news. When suddenly, I stumbled upon an article that said British Columbia wildfires, the damage so far and how you can help. What the hell was going on? Hi everyone and welcome to Life on the Edge. We are Estelle and Rami and we're storytellers. In this podcast, we explore what it means to live a life with no boundaries. As we go on with our journey documenting original stories around the world, we share with you the insights and wisdom of the people extending the limits of what possible means. In this episode, we will tell you about the second and last part of this adventure in the far west. And believe me, as in any good story, the real chills come at the end. Now, this podcast is the second of a short series of two. So if you haven't heard the first part yet, we suggest that you check it out before keeping on with this one. If you don't have time for it, no worries. You can jump into the story right here, everything will still make sense. Similarly to the first part, we will try to immerse you in the world of those Canadian rangers who face everyday challenges that most of us will never have to worry about. They can only rely on themselves and their community and every action and decision they make has a real, tangible impact. Sometimes as real and tangible as making the difference between life and death. Now, this episode may have the same flavor as the previous one, but oh boy, it is so much more intense. I wasn't there, but every time they tell me that story, I get the chills. So please, stick with us here and enjoy the show. My sister Magali and I had been on the ranch for almost a month already. It was the outdoor life at its best. When we were not taking care of the animals, we were clearing up all the barbell fences or helping to repaint the Graham Inn, which is a very cute restaurant and hotel that welcomes travelers who drive through the area. And by then, we were already getting some skills for moving the cattle on horseback. Yeah, kind of. Okay, kind of. But yeah, every day there was something new going on. The only predictable thing there is the unusual, the unpredictable. No day would pass by without something crazy happening. And one of those days, people started to talk about a wildfire nearby. At first, nobody seemed to worry about it. Wildfires are pretty usual and almost expected in the area in the summer. On top of that, we really couldn't feel that anything was happening. The weather was the same, blue skies and sunny days. But we pretty quickly realized that this summer, the fires wouldn't look like those of any other year on record. Wild 
One evening, as we were all hanging around in the living room, the local news announced that BC's firefighters were starting to be overwhelmed. The fires had taken the lead and they just couldn't tackle them everywhere. Too many had erupted at the same time and they would need to focus on the most populated areas. We obviously weren't on the list. At that point, the ranch was trapped in the middle of six different wildfires and we could start to see thin stripes of dark smoke on the horizon rising from the hills. From then on, the situation started to escalate quickly. A fire hit Williams Lake, burning down parts of the town. Entire neighborhoods had to be evacuated, as well as hospitals and other facilities. Soon after, the airport got paralyzed by a huge fire that was blazing right next to it. And obviously, our flight to Vancouver got cancelled and we had to rebook it. There was a tiny airport in a place called Anaheim Lake, which was pretty close to the ranch, so we decided to fly from there. We took the opportunity to stay longer than initially planned. We booked our new flight later this time and made it match with our flight back to Europe. This meant we had an extra week at the ranch. Needless to say, at that point, we could definitely tell that something was going on. Some ranches in the area started to evacuate. They were taking their horses and other animals out and looked for places where they could relocate them. People were really starting to be tense. A day or so after we had booked our new flights, a letter was brought to the ranch. It wasn't an evacuation order, but a warning to have our staff ready and enough fuel in the vehicles to be able to leave at any time. At that moment, though, it became clear that leaving was actually in nobody's plan. That's when you remember who those people are. For them, it's just the most natural thing. If there's a problem, you tackle it. You don't call a specialist. You don't ignore it. You don't go away. You tackle it. Okay, now, how do you tackle a wildfire? So first, you get organized. People from neighboring ranches started to get together to make up a plan. Initially, the plan was to bring some trees down and make trenches in the forest close to where the fire was burning. This would make it easier to contain the fire on one side of the trench. For that, they needed vehicles, volunteers, and a lot of creativity and problem-solving skills. People started listing the vehicles that they had and could send down to the fire. They made a volunteering list and everyone helped according to their skills. Locals who had worked in healthcare put an emergency center and the Grahamen offered to make the meals for the volunteers and to accommodate them so they could sleep over closer to the fire. They had to leave before dawn to tackle the fire in the early morning before the winds were too strong because then it was too dangerous to stay around. By now, the sun had disappeared behind a thick layer of smog and the temperatures had seriously dropped. When we were driving in the area, we could see parts of the horizon crumble into ashes and go up in smoke. And in some places, the flames were getting close very close. One day, 
a fire burned down several power poles, leaving us without electricity. Given the whole situation, this might sound like a detail, but it had many implications. We couldn't get tap water anymore, because at the range, water was pushed up the pipes by an electric pump due to insufficient pressure, so we had to get the water at a stream nearby. We also had to reorganize everything to make sure we didn't run out of food. Remember, we couldn't access Williams Lake for groceries anymore, and all we had left was stored in the fridge and a couple large freezers that were running on power. Luckily, we had enough fuel left at that time and we had two gasoline-powered generators, so we emptied some of the freezers and did our best to stuff all the food in one of them, which was plugged in one of the generators. It was a good time to sort out what was edible or not. We found a fish that was dated back to 1994. Guys, that's six years before I was born. I maybe shouldn't say that, but about once a day, I would unplug the freezer for a couple of minutes and plug the Wi-Fi router instead, just to send a WhatsApp message to Rami and tell him we were all right. You didn't mention the best part about the power shortage. Arguably, the most ironic part of it was that, since the kitchen wasn't powered anymore, we started using the barbecue whenever we had to cook something. Yeah, we were literally throwing barbecue parties in the midst of forest fires. As the days went by, one fire had started to take over more and more land and was getting dangerously close to some cattle and ranches. The volunteers had tried to stop it against a large water pond, which was easier than making a trench, but the fire had jumped over to the other side. The wind forecast for the upcoming days was downright alarming. The fire was coming closer pretty fast, and the last hope we had to stop it was a road cutting through the forest. Now, the wind was pushing the flames closer to the road, and we needed to prevent it from jumping over to the other side by all means. Day in, day out, the patrols were taking turns. And as long as the wind allowed them to be around, there were people working there. When Estelle and I first arrived, the fire had already reached the side of the road and in some places, the smoke was so thick that we couldn't see what was standing two meters in front of us. Volunteers first had to gather in the yard of a house that was on the side of the road just before the burning area. There, they had organized all the gear and safety apparel they could find. They listed the crew, gave some instructions, and from there, we took the cars and drove down the road straight to the blaze. Some people were staying in the cars, driving others up and down the road to take them to different spots of the fire. They were always ready in case someone was getting dizzy and needed to be taken out of the fire zone. Others were there with a small truck that had a hose and a water tank and they were pushing their way through the burning forest to get down the bigger flames that was sometimes as tall as the trees themselves. Estelle and I were on the other side of the road, the healthy side. We were carrying extinguisher backpacks full of water and running between the trees to kill any sparkle before it could spread. The whole group was operating in a surprisingly organized chaos. After a while, Lars, who owned the ranch we were at, came to pick us up. 
We headed into the burning part of the forest to see how things were going in there. It was suffocating and felt like walking under a scorching sun. It was a dangerous place. We saw Mags, Lars's son. He was with another guy. They were holding the hose of the water tank truck when out of nowhere, a tall and dry tree caught fire right behind them. And in a matter of seconds, the flame lit it up like a giant candle, showering everything that was beneath it with a rain of blazing branches. For two seconds, we held our breath. Then, we saw them emerge from the smoke, both uninjured. Luckily, they were standing just far enough from the tree not to get caught. And that was their routine for the following days and weeks. Time flew from there on, and sooner than we expected, it was our last night at the ranch. Max and Lars were staying at the Graham Inn that night, so Estelle and I decided to go there to say goodbye. We chatted for a while, but they soon had to go to bed as they had to wake up early to go to the fire. As we were leaving the Graham to get back to the ranch, we promised to come see them in the morning before catching our flight. We walked out under a sky full of stars and got into the car. We fastened our seatbelts, I turned the key, and the inn slowly disappeared behind us as we were driving down the road into the forest. It was about 11 p.m. The car was drifting a little bit. It was nothing new, and the gravel on this part of the road always made it worse. I had gotten used to this drive, but the visibility was bad. So I didn't go up to the speed limit and stayed at a slower pace. Magali and I were chatting about everything and anything. We were sad about leaving and at the same time excited about seeing our friends and family just to tell them about everything we'd lived here. We were getting lost in our conversation when a turn came that I did not expect. The road disappears. Magali sinks down on my right, my seat pushes me up and that noise takes over. And then, nothing. As suddenly as it came, the noise is gone. And the forest falls quiet again. I can feel the seat against my back and legs. Still and stable. We ain't moving anymore. I open my eyes and I just broke the silence. I called Magali once, twice, three times. She wasn't answering. I turned my head and when I saw her face, that's when I realized I was seriously getting on her nerves. Of course you were. We just had a freaking car crash, rolled over down the hill, and you can't give me like 20 seconds to breathe. Yeah, my bad. So yeah, after what appeared to be the longest 15 seconds of my life, she took a deep breath and yelled at me in French something like, It's okay, calm down, I heard you. And believe me, that's all I wanted to hear. At that moment, I didn't really know if I was okay or not. You know, it feels like so much happened at the same time that your mind is having trouble processing it. So I took a deep breath. I slowly started moving my head, then my legs, my arms. My hand was hurting and it was swollen, but it didn't seem like there was something broken. 
As I was making sense of what had just happened, I couldn't help but notice how tightly the seatbelt was wrapped around me. I know this is not a road prevention campaign, but if you end up remembering just one thing from this episode, make sure it is this. Put your f***ing seatbelt on! Like, really! Something like this can never happen to you until it actually happens to you. The windows were all busted and there was dust everywhere in the car. I remember us looking at each other like, so what do we do now? We couldn't call anyone as we had no signal. Walking back to the ranch would have been too dangerous even by day without the dogs due to the number of bears in the area. And by night, it was out of mind. At the same time, we couldn't just wait here. We couldn't spend the night in this car and we had a flight to catch in the early afternoon. We still had to pack our bags and mostly, we were totally unconscious. Looking back, it was a bad idea and we should have stayed in this car and waited for the morning. But we decided otherwise. After a few attempts and a final push, my door burst open. Magali came out on my side too, as her door was crammed in the distorted frame. Once out, we started climbing back up the road. It wasn't very high. The car must have flipped only once. So we got back on the road, and now we could see the tracks the car had left when drifting. Were we closer to the inn or to the ranch? We had no idea, and my mind was completely blurred. At that point, we knew we would walk, but we needed to decide in what direction. To the ranch or back to the gram? As far as we were told, what we were doing there was not exactly safe, so we had to keep it as short as possible. We tried to piece together the last moments of the drive to define our location, and with a lot of random guessing, we ended up deciding that we were probably about midway between the two. So we thought, let's head for the ranch, which, by the way, was the second bad decision we made in less than five minutes. Magali still had some battery on her phone that we could use as a lamp in the darker parts. When we had first arrived at the ranch, we were told that if for whatever stupid reason someone gets to walk alone in the woods, the best thing to do is to be as loud as possible. That way, the animals can hear you coming and have the time to go away and avoid you. Most of the time, an animal will only attack if it gets surprised and feels trapped. Yeah, and the second thing we were told was that if you ever get attacked by a bear, the best thing to do is to put your hand deep inside its throat. And I was hoping very hard that we wouldn't need the second advice, because honestly, I was having a hard time picturing how to apply it practically. So, we were walking in the dark. We are both fast walkers, so the pace was pretty good. We were singing on top of our lungs, as loud as we could. When I was running out of breath, Magali would pick up. When we ran out of songs, we started telling stories. We're sisters, and we're pretty close, but man, that walk was so long. I don't think we ever had the chance to chat that much. And then, we ran out of stories. So we started counting out loud. Sure enough, we never ran out of numbers. You know, it's surprising how, at that moment, 
there was no room for fear. We were so pumped with adrenaline, that was crazy. When you're alone at night in your own home, you get spooked about things that are silly as your cat staring a little too hard at a doorway. And here, no kidding, we were so pumped that we literally found it fun to do some stargazing while walking. It was the most beautiful sky I'd ever seen. <clears throat> Girls, please let's sum it up for the audience, okay? You, you don't realize. So basically, the two of them are doing a power walk in the middle of the night in a forest known for its healthy bear population and surrounded with six major and uncontrolled wildfires while singing like two drunken chipmunks. For how long did you walk again? As far as I remember, it took us a little over three hours to get to the ranch. So when we finally got to the front door, opened it and entered, it was such a relief. The others were still awake. They had been waiting for us to come back the whole time, to spend some time together before we left. And they thought we had just spent a little more time at the inn to say goodbye. You know what was crazy when we got home? In a matter of seconds, we went from super pumped to completely worn out. The moment we pushed the front door and stepped in the hallway, I felt my whole body starting to burn and hurt. And all of a sudden, I could barely keep my eyes open as I was so tired. If you've never lived it, it's hard to imagine. But the moment when you feel safe again, your body stops numbing all the feelings that were not necessary to keep you moving and it all crushes you at once. When I put my head on the pillow that night, I fell asleep instantly. In the morning, we packed our luggage and spent the last couple of hours with the others. We were leaving them with a ripped car to remove from the side of the road, as if they didn't have enough going on already. Obviously, they wanted to reassure us and they were all acting like it was no big deal. Everyone has already ripped a car here, they said. Well, maybe it was just the final step of our initiation. That's right. They were like, who gets so dramatic about a ripped car anyway? Both of you are doing fine. That's all that matters. Later that day, Andreas, one of the cowboys, drove us to the airport. It was by far the cutest airport I'd seen. It was merely a small chalet with a runway. As we took off, we could see the fires from above. It all looked so much smaller from there and so impressive at the same time. We had a sleepover in Vancouver that night and when we arrived at the Airbnb, half of our clothes were still smelling like smoke, even after three washes. And I had bruises on my forehead. Who knows where I got these? A few hours later, we were on a plane and flying back to Switzerland. Our heads were full of memories, and while we were happy to see our family back home, we were already missing our other family at the ranch, and we were still worried about the fires there. They kept raging for several weeks and lasted for almost three months altogether. For the ranch in Tatla Lake, the story ends well, but it wasn't the case for everyone. Thousands were displaced and many lost their homes. It turned out, this fire season broke every record since 1950. When BC started to keep records of wildfires and it only got dethroned one year later, sadly. That's the kind of experience that gives you a whole different perspective on life. 
It is empowering and very humbling at the same time to see so much solidarity. First, in your small group, which you can count on for little challenges. As little as pulling a cow out of muddy shifting sands? Exactly. Well, you've got to listen to the first part for that. But then there is this more serious situation where people who barely know each other get together to fight the fires. And it gets even crazier when people outside of the dangerous zone step in and offer to host people or animals in their own homes. It is hard to explain, but what struck me the most during our time there was this balance between reliance and independence that seems to be completely the opposite of what most of us know. We tend to rely on so many people for everything and anything. They don't depend on anyone who's outside of their group or clan. And this independence makes them more proactive. It's what makes them go and fight a fire instead of waiting and hoping for actual firefighters to come. And if and when they come, that's great, they finally get support. Now, at the same time, they heavily rely on their group, which creates the solidarity. It's already dark and someone still isn't home? Man, we gotta take the dogs, the quads and go out to look for them. It's our responsibility and no one else is gonna do it if we don't. There was a very interesting thing a lady told us at the Graham Inn. She said, you know, we often joke about the differences between the people living in the city and the ones living here. We say, the ones in the city will keep their doors locked at all times, because what if somebody breaks in and steals something? Whereas here, we never lock a door, because what if someone needs something and can't come in to find it? Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the story and actually, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. If you could take a few minutes of your precious time to leave us a review on Apple Podcast, it would mean the world to us. Take care and we'll catch up soon for the next episode.